0: Welcome to In But Not Of, a podcast dedicated to applying a Christian worldview to the study of history and culture. We're so glad that you could join us today. Hello, friends, and welcome to the maiden voyage of In But Not Of, a podcast dedicated to applying a Christian worldview to the study of history and culture. Before we get started, I thought I would just tell you a little bit about me and kind of what my plans are for this podcast. My name is Pat Richardson, and I have a master's degree in history. I teach history and philosophy at a public high school. I'm also a 2012 graduate of the Centurions program from the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. It's actually now known as the Colson Fellows program. I've also taught apologetic workshops and seminars throughout New England at conferences on college campuses and things of that nature. So what I thought I'd do with this podcast is kind of marry the love that I have for history and culture with the Christian worldview and see where it takes us. I'm hoping to explore topics that might be off the beaten path a little bit. Um, and, and kind of just looking at all areas of life and, and how the Christian worldview intersects in those, those areas. So today, in our in our first episode, what I thought I would do is kind of look at that age-old question of what does the church do with culture? How does the church interact with the culture around it? It's a pretty controversial question and certainly has divided the church over the years. And I thought that I would do this by looking at a book by Richard Niebuhr, who is a Protestant theologian and ethicist. He taught at the Yale Divinity School and is famous for writing the book *Christ and Culture*. It's kind of a seminal work of the 20th century that a lot of people will look back to as, as something of a quintessential kind of moment uh, writing about the culture and the way that the church interacts with it. D. A. Carson, who you may be familiar with, uh, wrote a book called *Christ and Culture Revisited*, where he kind of looked at some of those some Nibor's ideas and evaluated them. So I thought we could take a look at both of those books and, and look at kind of what, what D.A. Carson says, maybe add to it and, and come up with some fresh analysis, perhaps on both Niebuhr and Carson, as, as we look at this study of what should the church do with culture, what approach should it take as it interacts with the culture around it? So the first thing I wanna do as we get involved here is to define the word culture. We use that a lot, right? Um, culture is from a Latin word for agriculture. And in a basic sense, it is what people do with the world. And a real basic understanding of, of what culture is, it's what people do with the world. Chuck Colson takes it a little bit farther and calls it the belief system or cult of a group of people. That word cult, of course, usually has negative connotations to it, but in this sense, it means belief system or cult of a group of people. You have a healthy cult you have a healthy culture. A healthy belief system equals a healthy culture. And essentially, he argues, the cultures we create reflect our commitments. So if you look around at your culture, what commitments does it reveal? The late Ravi Zacharias said, in some cultures, people love their neighbors. In other cultures, they eat them. That's often a reflection or a consequence of what that foundational commitment in that culture is, the types of things they're committed to. Ken Myers offered a more detailed definition of culture where he said it's an ever-changing matrix of objects, artifacts, sounds, institutions, philosophies, fashions, enthusiasms, myths, prejudices, relationships, attitudes, tastes, rituals, habits, colors, and loves all embodied in individual people, groups, collectives, and associations of people, in books, buildings, in the use of time and space, in war, in jokes, and in food. (laughs) So that pretty much covers it, right? As far as what culture is, that's a very detailed definition. Now, Niebuhr writes Christ and Culture, wrote Christ and Culture in the middle of the 20th century and described in detail how the church has historically viewed its role or mission in engaging the non-christian culture around it. Certainly as we're here in the 21st century we we recognize the challenges, the unique challenges that we have today, but we can also go back in the past and we think about the Roman empire and some other periods in history and there were challenges there too. And I think we can certainly learn by looking at the past, you know, in terms of what we're facing here in the present. So the, uh, you know, the view that the church has taken and how to interact with culture has changed given the time period and the circumstance that it basically found itself in. So Niebuhr looks at this and he says, the first approach is something called Christ against culture. And this view argues that there should be a, cle- a, a clear demarcation between the kingdom of God and our culture that we ought to keep the church separate from things like culture. So this has traditionally involved the shunning of such things like military service, philosophy, and the arts. Keep those things separate from the church. This viewpoint often will warn you that if you teach about the culture, you end up commending it maybe even inadvertently, but you commend it and you end up giving praise to its idols just by addressing them. So if you think of it, there's been you know famous groups throughout history that have kind of definitely been dedicated to this Christ against culture view. People like the perhaps the Mennonites, the Quakers, the Amish, and that's just to name a few. Certainly sprinkled through throughout our churches today, there are individuals that take this approach or maybe entire denominations that tend to lean this way keep the church separate from the culture as much as possible. Now, this this approach has some strengths, and it certainly has some weaknesses, if you think of it. The strength of this approach can be, and I've experienced this myself to some degree, but it can create some close-knit communities with a great focus on doctrine and theology. According to historian Glenn Sunshine, He said, every great reform of the church up to the Reformation took place in monasteries. And since the Reformation, significant Reformation has happened due to intentional communities working to get the influence of the culture out of the church. So we often demonize the monastic approach to things, that separation of things. But there is a positive there, and we've seen it throughout uh, church history where there has been some really positive consequences of that. Reformation, uh, important reformation has happened in, in that realm because of that approach. Of course, one unintended consequence of this approach is it sometimes makes it really hard to evangelize, to seek the lost, and of course, to fulfill the Great Commission. It obviously can be really hard to communicate to those on the outside when you're doing your best to stay separate from them. The other challenge of this view or problem of this view is is that we use cultural terms all the time. And we're actually so knee-deep in culture, it's really difficult to divorce yourselves completely from it, no matter how hard you try. This radical type of anti-culture focus can bring some into legalism. Maybe you've seen that yourself, uh, where grace gets relegated to kind of a third tier. You pay lip service to the most important parts of the faith, but your focus and emphasis ends up being upon what everybody else is doing, being hyper-vigilant, if you will, to this idea of keeping the church separate from any type of cultural influence at all. Now, the second approach that Niebuhr brings up is known as Jesus the Christ of culture. And I would argue the first approach and the second uh, approach are kind of on opposite poles here, where this approach looks at Jesus as actually fulfilling the best hope of culture. This is where the identity of Jesus corresponds with what is most important in the culture at the moment. Now, the best example I can think of of this is in the 1960s, Christ kind of being viewed as that countercultural hippie obsessed with social justice. You know, it's similar today in the 21st century as we think of the issues we're dealing with right now. But in the 1960s, it was the Jesus of the counterculture, the hippie that was obsessed with social justice that was emphasized when people looked at the life of Christ. Now, the funny thing about this view of Jesus being the friend of culture is that the competing cultural forces both tend to attack this partnership eventually, the partnership of the Christian faith with culture. So think of Marxist forces, for instance, or the liberalism of people like John Dewey. Both of them would worry that uh, intertwining and combining Christ with their movement would weaken their movement by mixing this in. While conservatives of of, of of the church might see this as a threat in the opposite direction, it's a watering down or selling out to the culture when you get involved with them and you mix perhaps the identity of Jesus with the current cultural movement. Now today, this would mean emphasizing a Jesus that is synonymous with inclusion, tolerance, and spirituality while avoiding a Jesus that is connected with the teaching on law, sin, and for instance, the need for grace. So we, we relegate Jesus to the tier that we think is the most important right now. Um, if you think of it, this even manifests itself indirectly in popular megachurch uh, movements um, and, and the name-it-and-claim-it pastors who avoid talking about sin but focus on financial prosperity. So instead of the reformation of the church through talking about law and sin and the need for grace, uh, you know, Martin Luther said that the Christian life is is one of ongoing repentance. We have a name it and claim it and a, a church that's essentially built upon achieving financial prosperity. Now, the consequence of this, because there's so little talk of sin, people lose sight of their need for grace. And in a sense, they lose sight of how corrupt and fallen things really are. People may actually start to believe that an earthly utopia defined by our culture is how the gospel should be lived out. Now, I think that's a real weakness of this view, and we've certainly seen that manifest itself throughout history. There are some strengths of this Christ of culture approach. Uh, You have a voice in the culture, for instance, and you tend to be surrounded by people who don't know Christ you tend to be active in the areas that are important to people. But taken to an extreme, you lose your voice in the culture as you fail to bring the good news to the people who so desperately need it. Instead, your message, if there is one at all, often gets lost and engulfed by the secular cause or causes it focuses on. And eventually the gospel may be left behind all together. So, in this move to kind of be relevant and to be engaged with your audience, if we're not careful, the audience can become sovereign, as in the megachurch uh, seeker sensitive movement. If you think of it that way, but it can also lose uh, lose its voice. The gospel can lose its its message if it gets relegated to a second tier behind the cause that it's being applied to. We certainly see examples of that throughout history, whether it's whether it's social justice. Or whether it's reforming really anything in culture, um, it's it's a perpetual danger that that continues to to kind of rear its ugly head as you attempt to take this approach. Now, the next approach Niebuhr talks about is something called Christ above culture. Now, this is kind of a synthesis position, um, and this has probably been the dominant position I would say in church history. Um, While the central idea being, uh, render unto Caesar what is Caesar and unto God's what is God's, this approach includes the idea that God's truth encompasses all areas of life and culture. Now, Thomas Aquinas would be an example of this approach, where he argued that Christians are responsible for the institutions. Instead of abandoning our cultural institutions, Christians should actually feel responsible for them and to help build them. An active church intimately involved in many aspects of culture. Now, we'll get more into this as we go, but something like the Second Great Awakening, one of the perhaps unintended consequences of that was a retreat from the institutions leading to much larger problems later on in in our culture as the church attempted to engage that culture years later. Now, the strength of this approach is it can lead to a vibrant living faith that isn't just personal. It's able to influence culture for generations to come. People are on mission and have various ways that they can serve Christ and fulfill the Great Commission. So that's a strength. When you view yourself uh, responsible for all areas of life, there's almost a limitless plethora of, of ideas here or, or areas of life that you can get involved with and shape it with, with the gospel and the Christian worldview. The problem is this is always an imperfect balance, in case you haven't noticed. Um, when, when, when culture and the church are united, a messy rather than a neat fusion usually happens. And this can be discouraging and overwhelming, and it's easy to lose your way. It's easy to mix up the major and the minors, for instance, of your work. We can forget our first love because we are so busy trying to apply it. Or we can fail to impact the culture because we retreat from the messiness of actually doing so. And if you're like me, you've really felt that at times. Before you know it, you're busy, 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 but you stop and catch yourself and say, have I focused enough on the gospel? Can you see that through the busyness of the, of the ministry or the work that you're doing? On the same token, perhaps you felt that the, the messiness or the fallenness of our culture really uh, has an effect on us when we attempt to do this. So those are kind of the strengths and the weaknesses of, of that type of approach. And the fourth one that Niebuhr brings up is something called Christ and culture in Paradox. Um, And I think in many ways, this is the most ambiguous of the positions that we're looking at today. It's a dualist position where the church is involved with culture, but with an understanding and an emphasis on the fact that we are all sinners and corrupt. We are to obey Christ and serve our neighbor within our fallen cultural institutions, but we should never lose sight of the fact that love is our guiding force and informs all that we do. So as we go engage our culture, it's very important that we remember that love and compassion and our own inherent sinfulness should be in the forefront of everything we do. The strength of this approach is it does create a genuine humility as we engage the culture with the truth. We're less likely to be rejected or denied because of a perceived self-righteousness on our behalf. And this approach can also be very active and alive, just like the previous approach. Now, one of the weaknesses of this, um, or, or one of the challenges, I guess, as we go, is this recognition that we're all sinners can actually be taken too far, where it can lead to a type of antinomianism. Now, that term, perhaps you've heard it before, but that means a lawlessness from a misunder, or stemming from a misunderstanding of God's grace. We're all sinners, so it's it's kind of this this focus where uh, kind of some really bad behavior is allowed and put up with and tolerated, and you lose sight of how the gospel can change um, and restore and redeem, whether it's culture and individual's life, uh, because we're so focused on inherent sinfulness in this this idea. Or it can lead to a political conservatism, where the church clings to conservative religious institutions at the expense of political injustice often ignoring things like slavery or segregation, for instance. So clinging to those things that you're comfortable with that will give you a comfortable existence here as you attempt to engage the culture that way. So it's this paradox that we struggle with. Culture and the church will never be completely united, and it should never be completely divided. And it is messy. Um, and, And so that's some of the things that this approach looks at. And the next and final approach is this idea of the Christ the transformer of culture. Understanding that history is always an interaction between God and man. But the key here is to try and figure out what God is doing right now. This approach has a very realized eschatology to it. It's the idea that the victorious Christian life can be and should be enjoyed and lived out right now. So this is very optimistic. It's attractive to those on the outside. Instead of pessimism, we see optimism. We see the victorious Christian church and the realized eschatology happening right now. Of course, a weakness of this, though, can be as things get better and better, and the hope is that more and more will be saved as the church becomes more vibrant and stronger in its faith. It can ultimately lead to a universalism, believing that as our culture is transformed eventually, uh, we're going to usher in a new type of heaven on earth. It's very uh, post-millennial in some ways. Uh, More and more people embrace the gospel and are saved, and this thing kind of gradually is initiated. So which approach should we take? Well, today, given the time that we have, we are just going to begin to attempt to answer this question. And I want to do this by looking at the way the Apostle Paul engages his audience on Mars Hill in Acts 17. So in verses 22 through 23 in chapter 17, it says, so Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. So what he does here is he relates the gospel message to them in terms of their own religious system. He looks at what they believe, and he points out a point of contact here, that he can tell them and and point to them that they already know that there is something missing, perhaps. And he is going to proclaim to them exactly what is missing. Now, as we look at the rest of this, uh, beginning in verse 24, it says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So you see here that Paul, in order to effectively speak into his audience's religious worldview, he knows enough about their culture, that the culture that he was trying to reach here, that he is able to quote to them what their own poets taught. Essentially, he's saying here, this is what you're right about, but this is what's missing. And notice also that Paul presents the gospel message here without watering it down. He includes the bad news and the good news. Now, the bad news is their idolatry is all wrong. And that God has commanded that they, along with everybody else, needs to repent because he has appointed a day where he will judge the world through Jesus of Nazareth, who God has shown the world to be the Christ, the Savior of the world, by raising him from the dead. And that, of course, is the good news. You know, further, uh, further to expound on that, the righteousness, the imputed righteousness that Christ gives us. Um, this is the essential gospel message here, as you see it laid out on Mars Hill. Now, notice also that there were three reactions that at least is listed here um, in terms of Paul's message. The first reaction, and perhaps you've experienced this, is when people say, no way, not interested. We certainly see that, uh, you know, along with some mocking and some sneering. The second reaction we see is that some say, we'd like to hear more about this. We want to hear more about this. And the third reaction we see here is, have mercy on me, Lord, a sinner. So as Meatloaf sang in the 1970s, two out of three ain't bad, right? But notice that a mission field presents itself here with the people who want to know more. And I don't know historically what happened to this group that that heard that message that day on, on Mars Hill, but we know that the church exploded in the first century. We know that the church popped up all over the known world um but but even better think about how glorious it is when God allows us by his grace to be part of seeing someone come to faith in Christ and experiencing God adding to his church now acts 17 tells us that Paul experiences this on Mars Hill as some joined and believed so we've got three different reactions we've got a quite a lot of controversy and to be honest with you, when you look in the, the scriptures, it seems to be this is a this is what happens when the true gospel is proclaimed in the culture. So as you as you heard about the different different approaches today, I think you probably said to yourself, you know, there's a little bit positive in each one of these, there's a little bit something I can pull out and apply. But given the different situations that we find ourselves in, maybe some of these would be applicable at some times and not in others. And I think that that also corresponds to periods in in church history, in in global history, where one of these approaches might work better than some others. Um, But this passage in Acts also reminds us that it gets messy out there. But a positive is to remember that Jesus says, fear not, for I have overcome the world. And I kind of want to leave you with that thought today. Fear not for I have overcome the world. I think we forget that sometimes when we attempt to evangelize um, and and disciple out there that it, it can be tough, and we need to remember those words. Well, that's about all we have time for today, but join us for our next episode as we'll dig a little bit deeper into this issue. There's certainly a lot more that we can say, and until next time, remember, friends, all truth is God's truth, and if Jesus is who he says he is, That changes everything. We hope you enjoyed being with us today. Join us each week for In But Not Of, a podcast dedicated to applying a Christian worldview to the study of history and culture.